Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. I love what Ashley prayed. Everything that happens to us, he has a good purpose for us, though it might not seem like it at the time. In the end, it'll all be good. And that's why we can do what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, and we're going to be looking at verse 12 today, where he says, through it all, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. What does that look like? Well, um, a picture is worth a thousand words, so there it is up there. (laughs) What you see up there is what we're going to be talking about today. In some ways, anyway, that's what Paul's talking about, at least a good part of it. The poor little kitten is literally at the end of her rope. She's clinging for dear life. Her claws are, you know, digging into it as she looks down in sheer terror. Ever felt like that? I sure have. Where rejoicing, you know, is a sheer act of the will through the the sheer terror of of the abyss, whatever that might be that feels like is under you, maybe you're feeling that way right now. You know, it's hard to get cats to do much of anything. (laughs) But the only way you'll get them to cling to anything is (laughs) to get them to the end of their rope. And often the same is true to us. God knows the only way we'll ever really learn to cling to him consistently uh, and tenaciously, a good part of the way anyway, is pictured right up there. It's like Martin Luther said, without a cross and suffering, the soul becomes languid and tepid. Without a cross and suffering, it ceases to long for him and does not cling to him. You might say that God's fundamental goal with us is to purge Uh, out of us the worst traits of cats and to instill into us the best traits of dogs. He trains us to stay by his side like, say, a golden retriever or a Labrador or, or a collie, like man's best friend, rather than like a stray cat who wanders away and prowls around and does his own thing and then comes back to the master only when he or she needs him. If you think about it, we're a lot more like cats than dogs. In fact, there's a whole theology in cats and dogs. And bear with me for a bit because it's at the heart of what we're going to be talking about today. I've often wondered if dogs aren't like living parables. If you look at dogs with their masters of what we're supposed to be like with our master. In fact, you may have heard the book about a book that's titled Cat and Dog Theology. It says, dogs have masters, cats have staff. This is why mankind has traditionally attributed characteristics such as loyalty, service, and faithfulness, not to cats, but to dogs. But cats have acquired traits like independence and aloofness. A dog says, and I love this, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. (laughs) God's got to teach us a thing or two because we're a pretty independent lot. In fact, a whole lot of the Christian life, once you come to God's side, is learning to stay by God's side like man's best friend, developing the heart and the habits of one who's God's best friend. And through our lives, he's got to train us to do this, to need him, to want him, to obey him, to stay close to him all the time with all our, more and more of our heart and soul and mind and strength and not just when we want something from him. 
It's like it says in Deuteronomy 13.4. Here's what we're supposed to be like with our master. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. That's a dog. You shall keep his commands, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him right at his heel. That's the core of it all, the core of our verse for today, how we cling to him. So let me say it again, all through our lives, he's got to train us to do this, to come to him, to stay by him, to cling to him, to do it tenaciously. And this can happen like at no other time when, when he brings us to the end of our rope. Webster defines tenacity as the ability to hold firmly, which I guess is what we're going to be talking about today. We'll see that the most efficient uh, an effective way that our master trains us to exercise that kind of tenacity is through some kind of adversity. Because he teaches us the best of all lessons through the worst of all situations. He teaches us the best of all postures as we suffer. It's how we come to Christ out of crisis, and it's how we grow in Christ. And so one of God's deepest agenda in affliction through all of our agony is very simply that we would learn to cling to him tenaciously all the time, not just then. That's the scriptural context for our verse for today. And the million-dollar question, of course, is how do you do it? Well, that's Romans 12, 12 where Paul says that we're to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. The middle clause here is the heart of this verse, and that is the priority of persevering in tribulation, because God knows that's what we're going to get as Christians. And on either side of this, he tells us how to do it. Essentially, what he's saying here, and what you'll find all through Scripture, is that we persevere through tribulation by focusing on him tenaciously through praise and through prayer. That is, by rejoicing in hope, as Paul says here, and by being devoted to prayer. We've been seeing that Romans 12, 12 is all about uh, qualities like this. The qualities of true Christianity, the qualities that we're most to most highly value uh, as Christians, the virtues that make our faith real, both for true followers of Christ and for the watching world. Qualities like sincerity rather than hypocrisy. Is that what the world sees when they look at the church? Too often, no. Qualities like we saw the next, humility, courtesy, industry. And today we come to the quality of tenacity. Sincerity, humility, courtesy, that these virtues are sometimes the exact opposite of what, unfortunately, we've been seeing Christians are known for. And if we want to exhibit these qualities, our verse for today is the bottom line of how to do it. We come to the ability to cling to him wholly, to cling to him only, that God teaches through adversity. And in many ways, all the other qualities flow out of this one, because we can't do it on our own. It's the word of the gospel. We'll, we'll shine for him only as we stay by him as we cling to him. A lot happens when we do that. Again, this verse pivots on the middle phrase, persevering in tribulation. And first, first phrase, we do it by rejoicing in hope, by praising him continually. It's in the present participle in the Greek, which means continual action. It means to keep rejoicing no matter what happens. 
which of course you see throughout the scriptures, like Old and New Testaments, like David did in one psalm after another. He'd start by expressing his feelings honestly, as we'll see in a bit, but he always ends by expressing his praise willfully, almost like militantly, in the face of all he's feeling. In Psalm 3-7, for instance, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. But then in the next verse, he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's telling himself something. That's rejoicing in hope. Praising him in advance of his deliverance. David was a soldier, and you can just feel all through the Psalms like this militant praise. You see it again in Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me. Save me from those who pursue me and deliver me. He's being really honest here about his need. And then 16 verses later, though, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord who makes things right, and he's going to do it again. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That's rejoicing in hope. It's all over the place in the Psalms. It doesn't mean that you bottle up your feelings, as we'll see. David sure didn't. No, it's like what Paul did when he said that they were, and I love this, as sorrowful but always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, but always rejoicing, which means that the feelings of you know, sorrow or despair or hopelessness or sheer uh, terror, whatever, those feelings don't necessarily go away when you rejoice like Paul's talking about here, here in Romans 12, or like David did all through the Psalms. At first, anyway, such praise is usually an act of the will. Again, it's not exultant emotionally, but militant Uh, volitionally in the face of it all. Which is just as much praise as emotional praise. It's how you sink, you know, your claws into the lifeline of your hope. It's how you cling to him alone. It's what the early Christians did when they went singing to the lions. It's what Paul and Silas did when they sang hymns of praise to God in prison in the face of their adversity. It's what the Israelites did, and this is a parable of it all in 2 Chronicles 20 when King Jehoshaphat, famous story, put the musicians in front of the army as they marched to war to praise God in advance of the victory. That's militant praise. That's the kind of praise Paul's talking about. And they won a great victory that day. Someone said, faith is the bird I love this, that sings to the dawn while it is still dark. Faith is the bird that sings to the dawn while it is still dark. Are you singing to the dawn? Or are you, you know, sulking in the dark? You persevere in tribulation by rejoicing in hope tenaciously. You say something as simple as, thank you, Lord, that you will work this together for good. You're doing what David did. Oh, my soul, David would say. He's speaking to himself and to God. Or you put on your favorite worship CD, or you open the hymnal and, you know, sing together as a couple, like Julie and I sometimes do when things get really dark. Or or you piggyback on the Psalms and your devotions, as I know many of you do, or on other people's prayers. Here's one of my favorites. It's a prayer that's really good for adversity, a prayer of praise and uh, and thanks. It's day 18 of my mother's 31 uh, days of praise. Uh, And the whole book is all about what we're talking about here. And so if you're going through something right now, or even if you're not, you will be. (laughs) So why don't we all pray this silently, or why don't you pray silently as you're led? We're going to practice as I pray out loud. 
Father, I'm so delighted in you. You are both loving and sovereign. You cause all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So I thank you for each disturbing or humbling situation in my life, for each breaking or cleansing process. You are allowing, you are allowing for each problem or hindrance, for each thing that triggers in me anxiety or anger or pain. And I thank you in advance for each disappointment, each demanding duty, each pressure, each interruption that may arise in the coming days or hours. In spite of what I think or feel when I get my eyes off you, I choose not to resist my trials as intruders, but to welcome them as friends. Thank you that each difficulty is an opportunity to see you work, that in your time you will bring me out into a place of abundance. I rejoice that you plan to enrich and beautify me through each problem, each conflict, each struggle, that through them you expose my weaknesses and needs, my hidden sins, my self-centeredness, and especially my self-reliance and pride. Thank you that you use trials to humble me and perfect my faith and produce in me the quality of endurance, and that they prepare the soil of my heart for the fresh new growth and godliness that you and I both long to see and that my momentary troubles are producing for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them, on as I, them all as I keep my eyes focused on you. I'm grateful, and I love this, that you look beyond my superficial desire for a trouble-free life. Indeed, you fulfill my deep-down desire to glorify you, enjoy your warm fellowship, and to become more like your son. And then she ends with a a poem. I thank you for the bitter things. They've been a friend of grace. They've driven me from the paths of ease to storm the secret place. Amen. You persevere in tribulation by going along with the bottom line of what the master is trying to teach you through tribulation, and that is to cling to him and to do it in the unique way you can when you praise him before the dawn. When we rejoice and hope through adversity, we're clinging to him in the way that uniquely develops our capacity for tenacity, for holding on firmly, for rising up militantly rather than being, you know, at the mercy of our circumstances. I'm tired of that. I don't know about you. Now, this is so critical. It's at the heart and soul of the Christian faith because unlike they'll tell you, in so many Bible-believing churches, the Christian life is uh, one of tribulation. It's like Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, Acts 14, 22. Christ himself, at the end of the Bible, characterized the Christian life for all time as an overcoming battle so there'd be no mistake. He who overcomes, I will give. He who overcomes, I will give. Seven times in a row, I think he's trying to teach us something. With each of them, he said, there will be an overwhelming reward, but you got to overcome. And so two years ago, as we went through Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, we, we saw you could sum it up by saying the Christian life is a momentary life of labor in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence, rejoicing in hope. It's a momentary life of labor in his power while we suffer for an eternity of treasure in his presence of like rapture forever. And so ultimately, we can always rejoice in hope, just like Ashley prayed, because we know something about his goodness. No matter what happens, because as someone said, everything will be okay in the end. We know that. 
And so if it's not okay, it's not the end. For what it's worth, I've written a book on this called uh, the, the Upward Fall, Our, Our Pilgrim Journey Through Groaning to Glory. And the main idea is that, that what Paul called the upward call of God in Christ Jesus can have all the look and feel of an upward fall. But it will be worth it all because it's a pilgrim journey, as it's subtitled, Through Groaning to Glory. If there's one message I'd leave you with before we leave, it's this. If I had to choose a life message for me personally, this is it. Over the last couple of years, I've not promoted this book because I'm not here to hawk books. And I didn't want there to be the slightest impression that I was. And because I wanted to be your pastor, a pastor who loves you and is in there with you and not some author, you know, who's above you and trying to impress you. And now that you know me, of course, there's no danger of that. But now that we're about to go, Julie and I would like to leave these um, as a, a love gift. They're just a token of our appreciation for a season in our lives that, we, uh, that we, we will treasure for the rest of our lives. We're also doing this because it talks about how we're forever friends. Thanks to the hope that we can rejoice in. And we want you to know that though we won't be coming back uh, for a while uh, once we leave in a couple of weeks. It has nothing to do with our feelings for you. We count you as forever friends. We really do. It also comes with a, with a study guide uh, that's out there as well called The Upward Fall Companion. It's written by a seasoned editor and master study guide uh, writer who's a consultant with all the major Christian publishing houses, houses Thomas Womack. They're, uh, they're both in the, uh, at the table uh, in the foyer. For families, feel free to take more than one if you'd like your own copy. By the way, let me just say this real quickly about the book. It's not an easy read. It's written in a kind of poetic prose. It tries to capture the richness of the glory that awaits us through a poetic way of writing that is definitely not for everyone. So if you don't get through it, don't get down on yourself. And, and, and don't get mad at me. Some people have gotten mad at me because it's so frustrating for them to read it. Don't do that. But even if you don't read it, you know, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, heavy book, and so it's great as a doorstop. Some have used it for that. Uh, it's also an art book, so it looks good on a coffee table. But it, and if it stays on the table and it's not read, that's fine, because you can still see the title, which is the main point, and that is it's not a wonderful plan that he has for your life. If by wonderful, you mean pain-free. No, it's an upward fall through groaning to glory. And you gut it out through that groaning. You persevere through tribulation by going along with the bottom line of what the master is trying to teach you through tribulation, and that is to cling to the source of your glory, to cling to him alone, and to do it in the unique way you can when you praise him before the dawn. Ultimately, for the hope of a glory that is guaranteed after this like blink of a life. So the main point here in Romans 12, too, as we've seen and, uh, and all through Scripture is, in a way, that's how we make it to glory. When we rejoice in hope, developing our capacity for tenacity, for rising up militantly, rather than being at the mercy of our circumstances or other people or whatever. But the other side of it is the other side of this verse, which is the other way to hang on for dear life. Rejoicing in hope, 
persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. The phrase itself connotes perseverance, devoted to prayer. The word for devoted in the Greek comes from a a root that means steadfast. And so a fuller translation would be continually devoted to prayer, attending to it constantly. And the word for prayer here is prosukomai, which means, it means literally to prostrate yourself as in like totally flat on your face. So desperate are you. Earnestly and fervently with all your heart. Because just as important as continually praising him is honestly pleading with him. Just as much as we need to pour out our praise, we need to pour out our hearts, our tears, our fears, and all the rest. Or it just gets bottled up. And again, it's just like David did again and again. In Psalm 39, for instance, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. He's pouring out his tears before him. It's like Christ did even All through his life, the Bible calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grace. It wasn't a wonderful plan for his life, was it? Yes and no. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That summed it up, not just on the cross. He really went through it. And so how did he make it? Well, Hebrews 5, 7, it shows that it wasn't just on the cross. It was all through his life that he had these sorrows. Therefore, Hebrews 5, 7, when Jesus, through the days of Jesus on the earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cryings and tears. If he needed it, we need it. I don't know about you, but I found there's a peace that that can come as you do that especially if you let the tears come when it's just you and him. I can't do it in front of other people. Probably my pride. It's like the great devotional writer Matthew Henry said, in the day of affliction, this is Romans 12, 12, fleshed out. In the day of affliction, nothing is more seasonable than prayer. And yet too often that's what we most neglect. Afflictions naturally draw out complaints, and to whom should we complain but to God, he says. He can handle it. We've seen how David always ended his psalms in praise, and at least almost always, willfully, militantly rejoicing in hope. But he always began in prayer, fervently, honestly, pleading, even in despair. Paul himself said, we were depressed. We despaired of life. And in doing these things, he was doing the same thing, and that is clinging to him over and again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's like you don't even exist. How long, O Lord? Four hardest words in the English language for believers. All through the scripture. And you may be feeling that way right now. Well, if you are, would you pray with me again? I need it. We need to practice this together. Try not to let your mind wander this time. Cling to him tenaciously. Pray prayers that penetrate the rope. Let's unpack just a couple of verses of a psalm that I read. Pray silently as we piggyback and unpack this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Lord, I've been going through this for a long time, and I'm like totally miserable. And you know what I'm beginning to think? Feels like you've forgotten all about me. You say you care, but you're acting like you couldn't care less. How much more of this do you think I can take? 
How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day long? Every night I wake up, Lord, wondering what I should do, and I've got to do it by myself, in my soul, in my heart, because you're sure not saying anything right now. And it haunts me all day long, and it's a vicious cycle because I don't sleep, and then I'm always tired, and it just makes it worse. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? You're supposed to be my friend, but what are you doing about my enemies? About my agony? Some friend. Lord, it's so hard. Please help, Lord. And on and on we could go. And on and on we should go. It's called leaning hard. Leaning hard. Being devoted to prayer means to lean hard on the master. Speaking of poetic prose, here's how one devotional poet put it. Is God speaking to us? Child of my love, lean hard. And let me feel the pressure of your care. I know your burden, child. I shaped it, poised it in my hand, made it no proportion in its weight to your unaided strength. No, you need me. For even as I laid it on, I said, I shall be near. And while she leans on me, this burden shall be mine, not hers. So shall I keep my child within the circling arms of my own love. Here, lay it down. Nor fear, and I love this, nor fear to impose it on a shoulder which upholds the government of worlds. Yet closer come, you are not near enough. I would embrace your care. So I might feel my child reposing on my breast. Do you love me? I knew it. Doubt not then, but loving me, lean hard. That's union with God by our own volition because we're not puppets. He wants us to choose. Prayer is how you cling to the Savior, to the only one who can get you through by willfully praising and by honestly pleading. And maybe that's why there are only two things in all of Scripture that, as far as I know, we're commanded to do, to do all the time, and that is to rejoice Always, that's the first half of the verse, verse that's 5.16, and to pray without six, uh, ceasing. That's the second third, second third of the verse, First uh, that's 5.17. To be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4.6, but in everything by prayer and supplication, that's one side of it. With thanksgiving, there's the other side of it. Let your request be made known to God who can handle it. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as you cling to him. Persevering in tribulation by rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation by being devoted to prayer. Bottom line, well, you may have heard the story Professor Bruce Waltke of Dallas Seminary told. In fact, I shared this with some of you over two years ago. He said that once he rescued a wren, which is a little songbird, from the claws of their cat, speaking of cats. 
He said its wing was broken and it couldn't fly, but still it tried to escape his loving hands. And then he said, contrast this to my daughter's recent trip to a doctor. She had strep throat, so she needed a shot. And he was holding her, and as they gave her the shot, his father was holding her. Uh, He said that she was saying, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy. But all the while, he said, she gripped me tightly around the neck. There it is. His conclusion, Waltke put it this way, pain ought to make us more like a sick child than a hurt bird. Pain ought to make us more like a sick child than a hurt bird. Pain ought to make us more like a fickle cat who's learning to become like a faithful dog, right? As we cling to him. You know, in the pioneer days when life was really hard, they took great consolation in prayer and supplication. So much so that in 1845, William Walford wrote a hymn about it, one that became a classic, one that my grandmother used to love to sing. It's a simple, unaffected hymn that reminds you of those simpler days, and she'd talk about them when she and her family would walk miles through golden fields under, under big skies to sing hymns like this in their little white church where her father was the pastor. Back then, life was hard, she said, but their faith was strong. And their faith was strong because their grip was strong. And their grip was so good, in part because, like my grandmother, they knew how to pray. And so she'd sing it from her heart, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that caused me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons, and here it is, of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief. And oft escape the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. And since he bids me seek his face, believe his word and trust his grace, I cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. So speaking of prayer and speaking of praise as the worship leaders come forward one last time. Speaking of prayer and speaking of praise, why don't we do both right now? Everything will be okay in the end ultimately because all is for his glory And that will be our good. And everything is working to that end. So whatever you're going through, why don't you stand? And uh, let's praise him right now.